The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning once again. We are continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew 5 through 7, and this is part 14 today. And today we're going to start with a game that we sometimes play with our students down there at the Outback. I'm going to show you a picture of an object zoomed in, and you have to try to guess what it is. Now, since we can't really hear your responses up here on the stage, just you're going to tell someone next to you, close to you, what you think these might be. So here is the first image for you to take a guess at. And no, it's not one of the Muppets. But tell someone next to you what you think this might be, and I'll show you a second picture and then the third and final picture. So here's the second photo. A little closer. Now don't shout it out and give the answer away, class. But tell someone else what you think it might be. And then here is the final picture. How many of you were right on the first try? Anyone? Oh, wow. And proud about it, too. Yes. I like seeing that confidence. Yes. All right. And the next one is uh, something that I'm sure is from Star Wars, right? Or maybe not. Tell someone else what you think this might be. Here's the second photo. The third and final photo. Did anyone get that one right the first try? All right, a handful, all right. Some are sitting here going, I still don't know what that is. <laughs> if you know what that is, then you're officially old like me, right? All right, the third and final round, here we go. What is this? This is the most difficult one by far. Could be a planet, maybe. Second photo, not much help. We don't grade on a curve here, okay? Any ideas what this one is? If you guessed this, you were correct. Did anyone get that the first try? First try, one person, that is, wow, they, they probably saw this before. They were here in the last hour, that's what it was. That's what it was. Now, uh, Sometimes if you see something too close, too up close, we can often misinterpret it. If you, if you take an image and you zoom in too closely, you can often mistake, mistake what it is. But if you take a step back and you can see the whole, you can see it in its context. And we have to approach Scripture like that. You and I are really good at taking a passage and mining it out of the Scriptures and just focusing on those few verses by themselves. But you've got to take a step back and look at it in the context of the whole so we don't misinterpret it. And so today's a passage that is often done in that way where we will, we will take it out, out of its context. So looking at Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, we'll start in the first two verses here, verses 7 and 8, and it says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened." 
So again, you and I are tempted to zoom in on these verses by themselves and take it out of context. You know, some might read this and believe that Jesus is saying, you know, ask for anything you want and I'll give it to you. But let's, again, let's go back and look at the context with the rest of the sermon. Because Jesus wants us to ask, seek, and knock pertaining to all that he has said before in the Sermon on the Mount. So we started with the Beatitudes, recognizing our spiritual impoverishment before God. We will never have eyes to see that if we don't pray for it. We will never be salt and light. We will never control anger, lust, anxiety. We will never love our enemies. We will never judge properly if we are not people of prayer. So we have to see this verse in the context with the the whole sermon. Our temptation whenever we read through this sermon is going to be to think that, you know, we can just start doing these things. You start reading through chapters 5 and 6 and you start thinking, yeah, i got to get better at this and this and this and this. And you begin to try to do those things in your own strength. And I think right here, Jesus says the perfect words, ask, seek, and knock, because he knows we have to depend upon him as we try to live out what he's already said in this sermon and be people of prayer. So we cannot see this as God giving me whatever I ask him. That would ignore the rest of scripture. And can you imagine a world like this where God would just do whatever you and I want him to do? What if two people are praying for two opposite things? How would that work out? I think we can, we can thank God that he doesn't give us exactly what we want most of the time. Think back on your life and recount all the things for which you prayed, and you are now thankful that he didn't say yes. For me, I'm thankful he didn't say yes to earlier relationships that I was in. I'm thankful he didn't say yes to my top college choice. I'm thankful he didn't say yes to my top career choice, because my thinking was so, it was so limited. My perspective was so limited. And I know that there might be things that you're praying for and hoping for even now, and later in your life, you might look back and thank him that he said no, that he didn't say yes. So why does Jesus give these promises at this point in the sermon? Well, if you look at last week, Matthew 7, 1 through 6, those six verses are really all about our relationship with one another and how we view others, whether or not we judge and condemn them or not. And then verses 7 through 11 deal with our relationship with God, how we view God. And those two are very connected. How we see God, how we see others are intimately connected. Because whenever we look at ourselves in relation to others, and as Tim talked about last week, as we begin to see the log in our own eye, that should bring about humility in our lives and should help us see, his, see our need for his grace. And how do we get that grace? How do we receive that grace? Well, we ask, we seek, and we knock. Now, some people claim that there is this progression of intensity with the, the asking and seeking and knocking, and there's a case that you can make for that. But I don't think that's the main point. I think Jesus' main idea here is that he wants us to be people who are persistent and who, people who persevere in our prayer lives. Phillips Brooks says it like this, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of his highest willingness. Persistence in in prayer is not an attempt to change God's mind, but to get ourselves to the place where he can trust us with the answer. Prayer is about God changing and doing a work 
on our hearts. And there's this really interesting parallel passage over in Luke chapter 11, where Jesus, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, uh, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. And then Jesus gives the Lord's prayer. And some say that should be called the disciples prayer. And many use the Lord's prayer as like an outline for how we can pray. But Jesus knows that our struggle with prayer is not just about the mechanics or the structure. He knows our prayer is what? It's motivation. And so Jesus tells a story over in Luke chapter 11. He says, what if a friend came to your house at midnight and said, can I borrow three loaves of bread? Because someone has stopped by my house on a long journey and I have nothing to feed them. Because back then, hospitality was a big deal. You would always offer your guests something to eat. Now, you and I, of course, can't relate to that because if we needed food, we'd run to the store and not to our neighbor's house, especially not at the middle, in the middle of the night. But in that day, there were no bread shops and families made bread every day. So one neighbor has some guests show up in the middle of the night and he goes to his neighbor's house in hopes that that family has some leftover bread. And he asks him for the leftover bread. And Jesus says, you would never tell that friend who's knocking on your door in the middle of the night, go away, I'm sleeping. Like, well, no, you're not. You're talking to me through the door. But you would get up and give that person what they need. And he says, even if you were a bit annoyed about them knocking on your door in the middle of the night, you would still honor the request. Why is that? Because of their persistence. And he says, if a slightly annoyed human friend responds this way, then how much more will your heavenly father respond when you ask him? So do you hear what Jesus is saying? Jesus wants us to be like that man who's standing at the door at midnight asking for bread. The word that is used here is the word impudence, which means shameless audacity, or even rudeness. Jesus wants us that bold in our asking. When we come to him and we ask and we seek and we knock through prayer, he wants us that bold in our asking. Now, there's another passage we often misinterpret over in John 14 that I think can shed some light on this one, and it's John 14, verses 13 through 14. It says this, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, some think that that passage means if I just say anything that I want or desire and I just tag his name onto the end of it, then he has to do it. He's obligated to do it. That's not what John 14 is saying. This is not some magical incantation or genie in the bottle. Because to pray in his name means to ask for things that give him glory or to ask for things that are agreeable to his will, things that Jesus would sign his name to. To ask for something in his name is to ask for something that fits with his character. So for example, my kids would know to never ask me if they could buy a Dallas Cowboys shirt because that wouldn't fit my character. They would know better than to ask that question. And so can you and I pray for things that we desire? Well, well, sure, if those desires are not sinful. 
single and desire marriage or married and want to have kids or desire a new career, it's okay to pray for those things. I don't know if he's going to say yes, but we can certainly pray for those things. You see, if God is in control, if God is truly sovereign, then there is no such, for the Christ follower, there is no such thing as unanswered prayer. Tim Keller says it like this, God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything that he knew. See, you and I, we we pray from this limited understanding. And if we know what God knows, then we might pray for different things. Again, think of your younger self. You would pray differently if you know now if you, if you knew then what you, knew, what you know today. Let's go back to the original idea. If we see this command to ask and to seek and knock in the context with the whole sermon, then what if for the next few weeks this sermon began to, to shape our prayer lives? What if you and I for the next few weeks or months in your prayer life, you just went back over the sermon and you began praying through it just verse by verse and phrase by phrase and let it just seep into your your entire prayer life? What if we asked for a spirit that reflects the Beatitudes? Each one of those Beatitudes, what if you you asked God for the spirit to, to see those things clearly? What if we prayed to be salt and light? What if we asked for the right heart attitude in areas like anger, lust, marriage, anxiety, our relationship to money, loving our enemies, or judging and condemning other people. You know, uh, right now in the high school group, down in our youth building, we're doing a summer series called Life Stories. And each week, I'm having a leader stand up in front of the students and just share their testimony of how they came to faith and how God has grown them throughout their life in their faith. And it's been so powerful and encouraging for our students to hear and to see their stories and how God, where God's brought many of us from. And last week, one of our leaders, Leah Venard, she shared her testimony. And one of the points that she made, I loved one of the points that she made. She said, you know, I never realized early on in my faith how much of a fight the faith really is. And she said, now to be really clear, like you are, you're saved by grace. You're saved through no work of your own. You are declared, once you come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work for you on the cross, you are declared righteous fully. When God looks at you, it's like he's seeing his perfect son. So that much is clear that you and I cannot earn our salvation. But once we come to know him, many Christians just think, well, now I guess I just coast. I just sit on my hands. I just kind of wait for heaven one day. And she said, I never realized how much of a fight the faith truly is. But the good news is God gives us some tools in that fight. And prayer is one of those tools. And she referred to, yeah, at times being discouraged at how some students that she's worked with down at the Outback over the years, they'll fall away from their faith once they leave the, the nest of the home. And yet, what I think they miss sometimes is the reality that faith is this fight. And God wants us to engage in it in that way And that fight starts with prayer. But there are many things that keep us from prayer. And so what keeps us from asking, seeking, and knocking? Well, first of all, 
we believe that prayer doesn't work. You and I, we look out at the world and we see people who are not praying, not followers of Christ, you know, getting all their needs met, making money, getting provision. And we see those who are praying, Christ followers, not getting what they need. And so we conclude, well, well, prayer must not work. There's no power in prayer. Or we pray to pass an exam and we fail. We pray for healing and it doesn't happen. We pray for peace and the conflict only grows. There are many who have fallen away from the faith because they believe that God doesn't listen to their prayers. So why bother praying? Why bother with any of it? But sometimes if we have a thought like that, it's good for us to, to tease out the idea in the other direction. So what if, what if God answered every prayer just how you and I wanted? What if you had the knowledge that any event had been caused by your prayer? What would that do to us? C.S. Lewis has some thoughts about this. He says, a man who knew empirically that an event had been caused by his prayer would feel like a magician. His head would turn and his heart would be corrupted. I just imagine the, the character Gollum in Lord of the Rings when I read that line. The Christian is not to ask whether this or that event happened because of a prayer. He is rather to believe that all events, without exception, are answers to prayer in the sense that the prayers of all concerned and their needs have been taken into account. All prayers are heard, though not all prayers are granted. If I knew that I could pray and get whatever I want, that would make me God. That would put God as subservient to me and make him submit to my agenda. That would turn the tables on God. And we know that we cannot do that. The second thing that keeps us from asking, seeking, and knocking is that we believe that God already knows what we need. So why pray? Even if you go back in the Sermon on the Mount a little bit further, Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, he says this line. He says, don't be like the Gentiles who heap up these empty phrases thinking that they're going to be heard for their many words. Because back then, those who believed in many gods, they would do this action. They would repeat their God's names over and over and over without even thinking about it, hoping they can put those gods in, in um, submission to them. And they would just say these names over and over again. That's just mindless repetition. And he says, Jesus says, don't be like them. And he says, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now you might say, well, see, that's in the Bible. We don't need to pray. God knows just what you and I need. But he's saying, just, just don't repeat meaningless words. And right after this, Jesus teaches them how to pray by walking them through the Lord's prayer. So for the person who says, you know, God is sovereign, he's in control, He's going to do whatever he wants, so why pray? Well, then I have a question for you. Then why do anything? Why get up in the morning? Why go to work? Why earn money? Why give money away? Why share your faith? 
We can say that about anything when it comes to our lives. Why do anything if God is truly in control and truly sovereign? You might say it like this. God has a sovereign plan, but part of his plan is that we pray. There's a lot of mystery here, but we know this much. God is sovereign. He's in control. But we also know he tells us to pray. That's part of his sovereign plan for us to participate with him through prayer. So we can't resign ourselves by saying, you know, why pray? Why share our faith? Why do anything? God's going to do whatever he wants to do, so why pray? We don't know how it all works out, but his plan includes prayer. The third thing that keeps us from asking, seeking, and knocking is we believe we need perfect conditions to pray. Personally, I really struggle with this one. Maybe you can remember times earlier in your life, you know, before you had kids, when you could spend 30 minutes to an hour just uninterrupted reading the Bible, reading God's Word, 30 minutes writing deep thoughts in a journal, 30 minutes going on just an amazing prayer walk, the temperature was just right, the wind was perfect, the gates of heaven are opened up, you're seeing visions of angels, it feels like you've entered the Holy of Holies, maybe you started levitating off the ground. And you just have these amazing, intense encounters with God. And then you have kids. And the next time you're trying to, you know, spend time with God, you realize, I've only got 15 minutes. In the middle of that, the baby starts crying. The dog throws up on the living room carpet. I mean, just things happen, right? And you just realize, my time just slips away and I can't... I can't really do this how I used to do it. And so you delay or you stop altogether and you're, you're just waiting for those perfect conditions. Those perfect conditions never arrive. And if it can't always be like this, then I just don't do it. Listen, we can't allow this to prevent us from praying because he wants us to, he wants us to ask, seek, and not because it shows our dependence upon him. There's a preacher named Albert Tate, no relation to me, And he said this, quote, he said, the most dangerous thing about ministry is that you can become really good at it. And that quote haunted me. And it still haunts me because you realize when you've been doing something for a while, you can, you know, prepare a sermon or do an event of some kind. And you just, you just know the buttons to push, the levers to pull and just to make the thing happen. And it's a good reminder for me and also for you as well in whatever ministry you're involved in that we need to depend on him fully and completely and continue to ask and seek and knock and recognize that I cannot and you cannot put our confidence in our abilities and our gifts. You know, there, there should be times when we have these carved out, focused moments that we spend with him in prayer and, and study But there should also be times throughout the day where our our thoughts and our feelings and our worries just get turned into prayer. You know, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that we should pray without ceasing. Well, what does that mean? I heard someone say that the verb tense used in, in 1 Thessalonians 5 is the same to describe a hacking cough. You all know what that is. You live in Texas. About twice a year, we all get the hacking cough with allergy season. And you have this cough that just won't go away. And if you have a persistent cough, you might say, I've been coughing all day. 
That doesn't mean you had one big cough for the whole day. It means you had lots of little coughs throughout the day. And so the same verb tense is used here when, when Paul says, pray without ceasing. It's the same idea. It's every few moments, every few moments, this is how you and I should pray. We should absolutely have the times that we focus and it's carved out and it's planned, but then that should fuel the times, the moments throughout the day where we just, we go to him in prayer. You have a worry, you have a thought, you have a feeling. You take that to him through prayer. Now, before we go on into the next verses, this guy, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who once wrote a book that had 60 chapters on the Sermon on the Mount, he once raised this question. What do you think is the greatest defect in the lives of most Christians? What would you say it is? Would you say uh, Christians are just too compromised with the culture? Would that be the greatest defect that you think that we struggle with as Christians? Or maybe you would say, uh, you know, Christians, they just don't attend church enough. That's their greatest defect. Or they just don't know why they believe what they believe. So apologetics, that's the answer. What would you say is the greatest defect in the lives of most Christians? Lloyd-Jones, he said it was this. We fail to know God as our Father. And I think it's one of the main reasons why we don't go to him and we, we don't ask, seek, and knock. Now, we claim to know it up here. Yeah, 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 I, I know he's my Father. I know he's my Father. But do we know it in our daily lives and how we live our lives? You know, my kids, they have no trouble asking me for stuff. I mean, it could be good things. It could be some bad things. It could be some expensive things. But why do they not struggle to ask me for things? Well, because they recognize their dependence. They recognize the relationship that I have with them as a father. So they feel this safety. At times, I wish they wouldn't feel it so well. They, they feel this safety to come and ask me for things, ask for provisions. Now, would they go to ask random people for those kinds of things? That would be weird and awkward, right? Because there's no relationship there. But because they have a relationship with me, they feel the safety to come to their father and to, to ask and to seek and to knock. This might be the biggest impact on our prayer life. If we can see God as our father, how we see God directly affects how we approach him. And these next verses show that. Look at verses 9 through 11. Or which one of you, if a son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more will your, will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. So I want you to look at this analogy because Jesus compares the heavenly father with an earthly father. Now, if my kids ask for a sandwich, I'm not making them a peanut butter and gravel sandwich. Or if they ask for a fish, I'm not going to bust out a, a live Texas rattlesnake. If my kids ask for food, I'm not going to give them something that will hurt them. Okay, that's not entirely true. 
the other night, they were hungry, and so I took them to Freddy's. And I think it's really interesting how they put Freddy's right next to the ER, right? Just in case this meal takes a turn, you know where to go. Go next door. But here's the reality. That generally speaking, I'm not going to give my kids something bad for them. And you're not going to do that for your kids either. But Jesus says, if you then, who are evil, now this doesn't mean evil evil like a serial killer, but just just sinful, broken, like we all are. If a father who is, is fallen and sinful knows how to give good gifts to his kids, then how much more will the heavenly father give good things to those who ask him? We earthly parents, though we're flawed, we have this innate desire to do what's best for our kids, and God is a better parent than you and me. Yesterday, we had a memorial service in here for Mike Hagen, one of our elders, passed away this past week. And as sad as that news was for us to all hear this week, it was really joyful and encouraging to see his kids get on this stage and just testify to their father's life and how he was as a father. There are some funerals that you don't really have to preach a sermon. You can just let the kids do it. And he has seven kids. I think there was, I think I had five Hagens throughout my time as the youth pastor here. There was always a Hagen in the youth ministry down there at the Outback, almost always. And I watched his kids get on the stage up here and just share about their dad. There was something consistent that each one of them said is that Mike just had a way about him, that just this joyful disposition. He had a yes disposition with his kids. And they described that the, the moment the garage door would come up at the end of the day, they would run to their dad and give him a hug, and he would say, all right, guys, let's go out in the yard, let's play, and let's, let's, he would schedule fun for their family. And just a great testimony of how he was spiritually as a father, but also just wanting to give his kids good experiences and good things and and create good memories with them. And each one of them said that. And Austin Hagen, the youngest, stood up here and said, the father that, the person that you all knew as Mike Hagen, we knew that same person at home. And it was a, a powerful story for us to hear. And as I left yesterday, I began thinking about that image of how just he loved saying yes to his kids. He loved saying yes to them. And, you know, sometimes my kids tell me that I say, I say no a lot. And I say, no, that's not true. <laughs> no. But I struggle with that. I struggle to have this kind of no disposition with my kids sometimes. But listen, God has a yes disposition to his children, to his kids. If you're someone that's sitting here and you're like a skeptic, you're not yet a follower of Christ, maybe that's how you see God. That's how you may view the church and how you view the whole thing, is that I just, I just feel like I hear, I hear no a lot. Here, don't do that. Don't do that. No, 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 no. You hear it from the church. You hear it from, you think you, you hear it from God. But listen, the problem is, is that you view God like a genie but you need to view him like a father. 
Because a father wants what is best for his kids. And a, and a father will say no when he needs to. A good father will say no when he needs to. But a good father says yes a lot. And this is how Jesus describes it. He says, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You know, God doesn't always give us what we ask, but he gives us just what we need. And at times from our perspective, we think we're praying for, for bread and fish, but it feels like God gives us a stone. Or it feels like God gives us a snake. And we think that God is, is against us when something bad happens. But if you're a believer, he is our father, and he will never give what is evil. You know, sometimes we earthly fathers, we make mistakes. We think we're giving them what's good, but we later discover that we've given them something that's bad for them, potentially. But God, God never makes that mistake, you see. As we talk about prayer, I'm sure many of us, you feel convicted. At times, prayer sermons can be just guilt sermons. You think, yeah, I just feel guilty. No, I don't pray like I should. And our response is usually one of two things. We just give up or we just try harder, but we do it from the flesh, with fleshly motives. There's a statement someone said to me a long time ago that really helped me, and it was, why you pray will determine how you pray. At times, we approach prayer like, I just need to do it. I know it's good for me. I just need to do it. And that's true to a certain extent, but that will only get you through some days, not most days. But why you pray will determine how you pray, because why you do something will determine how you do it. That's true of anything. Because when there's an urgency, we pray. The problem is we only feel the urgency when crisis hits. I know that you and I can both imagine scenarios where something would happen and it would make you and me pray. And you know what those things are. And those things are often crisis. And so what I want to challenge us to do is, well, there's always a crisis. We just tend to downplay things, right? That aren't crisis in, in our personal lives. But there's always a, a crisis. There's always an urgency, spiritually speaking, if we're more tuned in to the spiritual war raging all around us, we might be able to dial in a bit more in our prayer life. If we just saw the why a little bit more. When Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock, he is describing a persistence, an urgency. And listen, I struggle just like you struggle in this area of our lives. Several years ago, I began just feeling convicted about how infrequently I pray for my neighbors and how, how infrequently I even know some of their names. And we had these new neighbors that moved in next door, and I hadn't met them yet. And I just began to, to pray that God would give us a chance to talk with them and, and maybe point them to the gospel. And this one day I was praying that prayer. And later that morning, I'm in my study at the front of the house, and I can see out onto the street, and I'm doing some work, and I see this fire truck police car, ambulance right in front of that house. 
And I think, but, but no one's like screwing around like it's some emergency, but obviously it is because there's a fire truck, a police car, and an ambulance. And so I see them working on some, something inside the house. And so um, I said to my wife, I said, hey, could you go check on them and make sure they're okay? And so she let them kind of, those guys leave, and, and they left peacefully. And she went and she found the one on the front porch, and she said, hey, um, she was sitting there on the front porch, and she said, hey, are y'all okay? What's going on? And the lady said, well, my, my 12-year-old daughter has some, some mental health issues, and she does some self-harm and some self-injury. And she took a sharp object, and she jammed it into her leg, her own leg. And so we had to call the EMS, and, and they had to come take her to the hospital. And she's going to be okay, but they need to go take it out at the hospital. And so her, the dad went with her in the ambulance. And my wife just said, well, I'm sorry to hear that. Can, can I pray for you? And so she prayed with this woman. And then they finished the prayer, and the woman says, hey, do, do y'all go to church somewhere around here? And she says, well, yeah, we do. My, my husband works at a church. And she told, she told her about that. And she said, well, do you mind if we come with you this coming Sunday? And so she went with my wife to service that next Sunday here at TBC, and she said she was so moved by the service in here. And they had some good conversation. And listen, I don't have some grand finale ending that this person became a Christian. I don't know if they were, already were or not, but that led to some conversations with this person. They've now since moved out of the neighborhood several years ago. But I tell you that story not to say, look at us, because I feel like I barely asked. And I don't understand how God works everything out, but I know this. I know that he wants us to ask, seek, and knock. And we've talked about him being our father, but how does he become that for you and I? John 1, it says this, he came to his own, And his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Listen, no one comes, becomes his child by default. We need to receive him. You become his child when you surrender to him, when you are are born again, when you place your faith and trust in his finished work on the cross for you. He gives you new life and a new nature. But it doesn't stop with salvation. He gives us good gifts. And the greatest gift that he gives is the gift of the Holy Spirit. He gives himself to us to dwell within us. Over in Luke chapter 11, Jesus says it a little bit differently where he says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The greatest gift that he gives is the Holy Spirit. And in giving us the Spirit, he gives us every good gift. They are all given to us in him. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it like this. You see now why we should thank God that asking, seeking, and knocking do not mean that if we ask for anything we like, we shall get it. What it means is this. Ask for any one of these things that is good for you. That is for the salvation of your soul your ultimate perfection, anything that brings you near to God and enlarges your life and is thoroughly good for you, and he will give it to you. You reach out to him through prayer, asking him to save you, and that is a prayer that he always answers with a resounding yes. And in Revelation chapter 3, we see the words of Jesus to the church in Laodicea where he says this, behold, I stand, I stand, at the door 
and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. He wants fellowship with you. Will you respond to that invitation this morning? Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are a father. And God, we know that there are lots of earthly relationships that can, that can taint our view of fatherhood. And God, none of us earthly fathers are perfect by any means. But our job is to point our kids to the best father. And God, I know that we fail on that, but I pray that whatever the stories are in this room, that that would not inhibit someone coming to know you and coming to know you as as the best father. And God, I pray that if, if there's someone sitting here that doesn't yet know you, not yet a follower of yours, that they would come to see you as that. And whatever baggage they may have with the church or with faith, that they would truly see you as you describe yourself here, as you describe your father here in this passage, that you want to give good gifts to your kids, good sanctifying gifts, things that that are for our benefit, for our good, for our growth, and for our sanctification. God, we worship you, we praise you for that reality. We pray this in your name. Amen.